0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series held on December 18, 2019, Tax Readiness Q4 Financial Reporting Considerations. The panelists for the webcast were Damien Boudreau, a partner in PwC's U.S. Tax Accounting Services, Jennifer Spang, PwC's National Tax Accounting Leader, and Ryan Weldon, a director in PwC's National Professional Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the highlights of the accounting standards update. Have a listen.
1: So moving right through to number six, we're we're past the halfway mark now. Um, So as we think about standard setting, I mentioned before the simplification project. So Ryan, why don't you walk us through... Tax
2: simplification and what we um, what we expect and how that might impact us. Okay, so good news. We actually have, as of earlier today, um, the standard update on simplification. It's out. It's out. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, just as a reminder, the simplification standard update, it removes certain exceptions within GAAP um, 740, and it also modifies certain other areas with a focus on simplifying accounting for income taxes and hopefully um, consistency in the application of GAAP. So I know we've gone through this in prior webcasts, so I'm not gonna repeat and go through all of the details here, uh, but now that we do have the final standard update, wanted to provide um, update on the effective dates and early adoption. So for a calendar year public company, uh, this standard would be effective um, for both annual and interim periods in 2021. For all others, it would be annual periods beginning in 2022 and um, interim periods in 2023. And companies can early adopt this in any interim period.
1: Yeah, so and and I know we won't go through all of them because there are a number of changes and they're all unrelated. Um, So we won't go through all of them. But one that I've seen particular interest in, um, if you've been around for a while, you may fondly refer to it as the paragraph 140 exception, uh, is one that people are pretty interested in from an early adoption. So maybe even taking that into account in 2019. So can you take a minute and just go through that one?
2: Yeah. So first, let's start with what is inter-period allocation. Um, So this is where you take your total provision and you're allocating it to the different components of income. So continuing operations, discontinued operations, other comprehensive income. And the standard provides us with a three-step process. The first step being calculate the total provision. Step two is you calculate a provision based only on continuing operations. And the third step is to take the difference between those two, and that's what gets allocated everywhere else. Um, it's commonly referred to as the with and without approach. Sounds very simple. <laughs> so, <If only>. yeah. <laughs> so this exception would apply um, when you have a loss in continuing operations, but income and those other components. And it's easier to talk about what this would look like with an example. So let's say that I have um, a total provision of zero. Because I have a full valuation allowance well if this exception applied because I had that loss in continuing operations but income somewhere else um, this exception would say that in that second step when I'm calculating my continuing operations provision I'm actually considering that income and so I would record a benefit there with an offsetting expense in that other component to get me back down to zero um, so you're grossing up the zero amount into an income and an expense um, so what? The simplification does is it removes that exception. So now you just go back to that normal model. And in that case, you would have that zero total provision that's not changing. But now you're going to have zero in continuing operations because you don't get the benefit if you look at it on its own, and zero in discontinued operations because that's what's left. Um, so the FASB is getting rid of this one because it was often misapplied or just overlooked altogether. Yeah, and you know, I think it also gave counterintuitive results, right? And questionable as
1: to whether that provided any shareholder value. So um, that makes sense. So you mentioned early adoption, and early adoption, I know, is any in any interim period. So even a company in the fourth quarter, a calendar year company, could adopt. But what does that mean? Because it said as of the beginning of the fiscal year. So or. Are we restating
2: those numbers? What are we doing there? Yep. So you're not going to restate those prior periods. um, But to the extent that those quarters show up anywhere else, like in the 10-K or um, next year as comparative information in the 10-Q, that would need to be revised to reflect this new gap. And more importantly, there's no cherry-picking here. So if you do early adopt you're adopting everything. Um, So even if you wanted to adopt this because you like the paragraph 140 exception, it's important to understand all the other items and how they might impact you because you're gonna have to account for those as well. And we do have a mixed bag on the transition guidance. Fair, great.
1: So let's move on to number seven and I'll go ahead and take this one. Give you guys a little break. (laughs) Um, Critical audit matters, or as we call them, CAMs. We've talked about this on this webcast actually um, earlier in the year. We had uh, the good fortune of having one of our PwC partners, Brian Croto, who had a lot of um, involvement in in CAMS, join us on this webcast. The reason we wanted to bring it up today is just it's here, right? So so these are disclosures by an auditor, not um, the company, but they're disclosures that are required for years ended you know, ended or ending June 30th, on or before, uh, sorry, on or after June 30, 2019 uh, for large accelerated filers, and then on or after uh, December 15th, 2020 for everyone else. So, we've actually seen uh, for, for non-calendar year on companies already having to address this, um, but as we move into this 1231, um, you're going to see a fair bit more activity, And so just as a reminder, critical audit matters are um, matters that have been or are required to be communicated to the audit committee. Um, They are material to either reporting or disclosures. And they involved um, challenging, subjective, or particularly complex um, auditor judgments. And so when those criteria that you have here on your slide apply, this drives a disclosure. Now, it is a disclosure. It, it doesn't modify our opinion. It is incremental to that. It's meant to provide transparency into the financial statements. Um, from an income tax accounting area, when you think about challenging subjective or complex auditor adjustment, auditor judgments, taxes, as we just talked about here today, uncertain tax positions, valuation allowances, outside basis, you know, complex structures you know, it makes sense that tax might be in that mix. Um, And if you look at some of our activity and we look at the areas that have drilled down into that, it is in fact those areas that we're talking about here today as the more detailed tax issues that we'd look at. Um, Other areas in disclosure, you know, included business combinations, um, you know, um, impairments, um, but again, taxes in that sort of top 10 list, if you will. From my perspective, if I were to think of anything from a company perspective to think about, it's about communication. Um, while it is a disclosure from the auditor, it does—it it is something that companies would um, benefit from having conversations, understanding where their auditors are coming from, what they're looking at, and then taking the opportunity to look at disclosures, right? And I know we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but when you think about disclosures, transparency around disclosures, and thinking about if your disclosures are communicating what you intend them to do. So it's a great time to kind of take a fresh look at that when you think about that. So that's the quick update on CAMS. Um, Ryan, I'm gonna go back to you. SEC comment letters, they're not one of our top 10, um, but they do commonly come up in questions. People are interested. So could you give us just a rundown of what we're seeing in that?
2: Yep. So we're actually seeing a downward trend in the number of comment letters for both income taxes and overall. Um, But income taxes as a percentage of the whole, that's remained relatively stable. And we're also seeing the same topics come up that we've seen before. So that's valuation allowances, effective tax rate reconciliation, uncertain tax positions. Um, So just a few quick hits on those. On the valuation allowance, it's usually asking for more information on that positive and negative evidence that we talked about before. Uh, For the effective tax rate reconciliation, we'll see uh, questions asking about year-over-year changes that are significant, um, but also requesting further disaggregation. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. For uncertain tax positions, it's really where you see a significant change, and the questions are asking about what drove that change and why that period. Um, so tax reform, we are starting to see some comment letters specific to tax reform. Um, might be a question on the toll charge or STAB 118, but generally speaking, we're not seeing any new trends. Um, generally, they just fall into one of those other baskets that I already talked about. Great. Okay. So let's stay with you and move
1: to that topic. Let's move to number eight and disclosure best practices. It's a Natural time of year to be talking about it, since there are so many disclosures that are just on an annual basis. So, why don't you share some best practices?
2: Okay, so I'll eventually talk a little bit about the tax footnote, but before I dig in there, one comment for SEC registrants. Um, so, as a reminder, SEC registrants are required to disclose to discuss their current financial position and any potential changes in management's discussion and analysis. So as we talk about all these legislative and regulatory updates that we're seeing around the world, I think companies should be thinking about those and whether or not it would be worth um, including any disclosures if the impacts could potentially be material. So just a couple that come to mind are US tax reform where we're seeing more and more regs, um, these law changes that Damien will be talking about, um, the OECD project that you talked about before, there's plenty there to choose from. So then if I move into the tax footnote, um, I'll talk about three items. As I mentioned, effective tax rate reconciliations, um, outside basis differences, again, we can't get away from it, Um, and then deferred taxes related to leases. So effective tax rate reconciliation. Um, I mentioned this before when I was just talking about SEC comment letters. So this is a reminder for SEC registrants that there's the 5% disaggregation rule. So any item that can impact your effective tax rate by more than 5% of your statutory rate has to be sort of pulled out and disclosed separately. And so here in the US, uh, 5% of our 21% rate is right around the 1% mark. So it's important to keep this threshold in mind as you're going through and grouping similar items and figuring out what to disclose separately. So then outside basis differences, and this is not just SEC registrants, this would be anyone that is asserting indefinite reinvestment on outside basis differences. So here we have three required disclosures. The first is the gross outside basis difference, it's the taxable temporary difference. Um, I think before reform and before toll charge, we often saw retained earnings here as a proxy. The second is a statement indicating what would cause that to reverse become taxable and the third is disclosure of the actual unrecorded deferred tax liability or a statement that it's not practicable to do so and so we often saw that impracticability statement before Um, as we mentioned some companies are still asserting indefinite reinvestment after reform and we're still seeing this impracticability statement even though the basis differences might have closed and maybe calculating those deferred tax liabilities is less complex But one thing that I want to note here, we did say, disclosure framework project. We don't have the final standard. And one thing in there that everybody was looking forward to was that removal of the requirement to disclose that gross outside basis difference. You can't take that into consideration yet. Um, To the extent that you have to disclose these, you're you're still, you have to disclose all three for 2019. So then on leases, um, so what's important here is we'll move to The table in the tax footnote where you're disclosing your deferred tax assets and liabilities by item. Um, And so it might sound reasonable that there would be one item for leases, but it's important to keep in mind that there's actually two temporary differences here. And so we have to show those separately in this table. And so if I think about a lessee, I'm going to have a deferred tax liability based on that right of use asset that I have on my books that will be amortized over time. And I would have a deferred tax asset for my lease obligation that will give me um, deductible payments in the future. So again, not putting these together and showing them as a single line item. We want to break them out and show them separately. So then I'll move outside of the footnote um, and just take a more holistic view. So two final thoughts. One is early warning disclosures. So if there's anything like uncertain tax positions or valuation allowances where you can foresee maybe a change coming soon, Um, it'd be worth thinking about whether or not there's something to disclose there. And finally, it's also important to be consistent anywhere these tax numbers show up, whether that's the footnote, management's discussion and analysis, as I mentioned before, on earnings calls, Um, just keep the story the same. Great, thanks,
1: all very helpful. A lot there to be thinking about as we head into this. All right. I know you're anxiously awaiting this (laughs) one. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's shift to number nine. Um, We've talked about it. In in fact, we talk in every quarter about global tax law changes at some level. Um, We've had some new ones come to the table with Mexico and some additional developments in India. And uh, I'm certain you will share some thoughts on Switzerland, (laughs) which is... Absolutely. Favorite Your favorite topic.
3: Absolutely. Right? Absolutely.
1: So let me turn to you with number nine.
3: Absolutely. So, so let's touch upon India first. And uh, I think the item to note here is that, uh, you know, many remember there was an ordinance that was released or published back in Q3. And that ordinance uh, had, among other considerations, a, a change in tax rate for corporate entities uh, with maybe some elect developments. And so uh, as, you know, at that time, uh, we did, you know, Parliament was not in session. And so the, the legislative process for that, for that piece is, is effectively done now. I mean, it, it's gone through the legislative process. It's received presidential assent. So it's enacted. And so for Q4, for companies that have India operations, uh, it's important to take that into consideration you know, for, for your year-end provision. And there are some elective components to that, so companies will need to make a decision there. Uh, but it is a Q4 event. Uh, Secondly, you mentioned Mexico. So Mexico has its own version of tax reform that it just, you know, at this point has enacted as well. Um, That was published in the Mexico Federal Register on December 9th. And no rate change there. It's largely prospective starting in January 1st of next year. Uh, But there are a couple of elements to highlight. One is a interest limitation that's not dissimilar from our 163J interest limitations, so going back to the earlier discussion we had about valuation allowances and the interaction with 163J, I think where you have substantial Mexico operations, something to consider. Uh, additionally, there are some beat type, you know, as a beat type regime there, uh, as well as some digital tax implications. So there's there's a lot in there, uh, and I think companies should be aware of it. And again, you know, but again, no rate change. So it has been enacted in Q4, and, and companies should evaluate that. Last is Switzerland, right? So we've talked about Switzerland in Q2. We've talked about it in Q3. We'll, we'll briefly touch upon it here, but I, I, I want to kind of highlight a couple of elements really from the cantonal level, right? So we had, you know, again, as a reminder, federal reform and the state, or excuse me, a cantonal impact to the legislation. The federal impact was for county or taxpayers enacted in Q3. So now, you know, sitting here in Q4, we're really thinking through out of those twenty-six local cantons, where are they at in their legislative process? Because their legislation, as it was originally, uh, you know, voted on on the referendum, directed the cantons to change their legislation, but you know, the cantons still had to go through that process. And so, the you know, as as you can see, and we've put a we put a map up here. Each of the cantons has its own timeline, its own legislative process. And so, what this map shows here is that. For a canton that's published its new legislation in the local gazette, or excuse me, local register, that legislative process is complete. There are no other actions that are going to occur. It's enacted for the quarter. But what you'll notice is there's a lot of cantons that have not completed their process. And what that effectively means when you go back to the original legislation, the legislation said for a canton that does not complete its process before the end of the year, because keep in mind these measures are really effective. One one of 2020, right. that is important. You know, the Canton needs to at a minimum release what we call temporary measures, right? And then subsequent to that, could have you know a completion to its legislative process. Let's say during 2020. So important here as of today. Here's where we stand. The year's not up. Right. So, you know, we could see activity through the remainder of the year, either through completion of the legislative process, and that can vary by canton, or the release of temporary measures, which would need to be accounted for as well. So more to come here. I think it's important for companies to keep monitoring that because we could see activity all the way up to the end of the year.
1: That's very exciting.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> going up to the end of the year is always, uh, always interesting in your year-end accrual, so.
1: <laughs> Certainly keeps things challenging. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, thank you for that. So let's move to number 10. Um, what is an income tax? Now, some might question us putting that at the back end <laughs> of an entire webcast on income tax accounting. And considering it is a question of what's in scope and what's out of scope, Um, You might question, why is it on the back end? But we actually very consciously chose to put it here um, because everything we've talked about would be impacted by what is an income tax. So whether it's an uncertain tax position, if you're in the income tax accounting model, that's one model for assessing uncertainty versus if you're outside. Um, Measurements as you think about assets and liabilities – All of these are different or can be different if you're in or out of the standard. But this is an area that we see coming up in almost all of these changes in tax laws where there's some aspect of a question of whether or not an income tax. Um, So why don't I stay with you, Damien, and maybe you can share um, some things for us to be thinking about, in particular as we think about some of these changes in tax laws and what kind of criteria we need to be considering.
3: So as you mentioned, you know, when we're talking about ASC 740, we're talking about taxes based upon income. And so in many cases, we may see a law change either from a, from a non-U.S. perspective or in a state perspective where it's not clear, right? And so, and U.S. GAAP does not necessarily give us clear guidance on what is an income tax, right? And so I think for, you know, for a lot of companies, you can think about this in its extremes, right? You could have a situation where you have gross income and all of your deductions are allowed against the tax base. That would very clearly be an income tax. Alternatively, you can have a gross receipts tax where no deduction is afforded. And I think for many folks that can be clearly a non-income based tax and in those particular cases could be accounted for in pre-tax income. Uh, where it gets a little gray is where somewhere in the middle, <laughs> right? And so. You could have scenarios where you have certain investment income, and that investment income may be afforded certain investment expenses, but maybe not all of the available deductions. And so, you know, there is a question in those spaces about whether that's an income tax or not. You know, typically where we see an item of income with some level of expenses getting to a net number, right, then we would typically view that as an income tax and subject to ASC 740. Where again, if it's more of a gross receipt type tax with no deductions available, it would again be necess- it would be accounted for as a non-income-based tax. Uh, where we see this come up again, as I mentioned, in the state space, but also, you know, going back to the OECD discussion, right? The a lot of non-US jurisdictions are are enacting or considering various unilateral measures for digital taxes, right? Okay. And so this is where I think a lot of this question has come up is. Well, I've got a digital tax, is it an income tax or not an income tax? And you know, a lot of these, either in proposed or enacted form, are some sort of turnover or gross receipts tax. And in those cases, those may be non-income-based taxes, right? But I think it's important for companies when, when such law comes out to really take a look at the mechanics of that and say, okay, well, what are we getting at here? Is it truly a gross tax or are there some level of deductions available which may change our view on that?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I think the other place where we see it coming up a lot is the assessment of whether an incentive is in belongs um, in the income tax accounting model or it belongs above. So, is it is it an income tax accounting incentive or is it something more akin to like a government grant right. or some kind of um, other asset, if you will, that needs to be assessed really in an above the line model. It, as I listened to some of this, um, a couple things, and, and some of this changes gears a little bit, but a couple questions that had come in, and, and I want to stay with you for just one minute on outside basis mm-hmm. difference, so just shifting for just a minute. In an outside basis difference, you know, recognizing we talked a lot about deferred tax liabilities or when you have book in excess of tax basis— But in the world we're in today, post-reform, we see a fair number of tax in excess of book basis differences. Mm -hmm. And so is that the same, different, everything that we talked about? So the question is really, what's the model if I'm looking at an outside basis that is an asset instead of a liability?
3: Right. Right. So where you have tax basis and excess of book basis, right, then the the standard is really you, you would recognize that deferred tax asset only if you, if you were going to recover that asset in the foreseeable future. So it's not quite the same standard as where you've got the book over tax basis and you recognize the deferred tax liability unless you can make, and again in a foreign context, unless you can make, let's say, an indefinite reinvestment assertion.
1: Got it. Okay. Um, so Ryan, I'm going to go to you. I'm just trying to sneak a couple in here before we go uh, just in our last few minutes. Um, regs, um, we did talk a lot about global reform, and we've referred to the regs, but obviously earlier in December, we saw final foreign tax credit, proposed foreign tax credit, final BEAT, um, and uh, proposed BEAT. Um, I know for the foreign tax credit, they were pretty close to the proposed regulation, so not sure, you know, if you followed the proposed regs, it might be relatively closely aligned. But with BEAT, we got some additional clarification that could have some accounting impact can
2: you just take a minute and hit on that? Sure. So what we see for BEAT is that the reverse, the Treasury has actually reversed their position on uh, certain transactions that might have before been considered BEATable payments. And so um, this is actually good news. So now if you had any of those transactions before, um, those won't be considered um, in your BEAT calculation and potentially maybe you're paying less BEAT. And so with BEAT, it's important to remember there shouldn't be any deferred impact right. from this because uh, BEAT is period cost, but we could see some some current period impacts or um, potentially going back.
1: Great. Okay.
2: Um, why don't I look to each of you just
1: for a final comment? So, as you think about everything we've covered today, what would be maybe the one big takeaway that you'd propose to our listeners?
3: Well, I think similar to our discussion on Switzerland, look through rules under 954C6. We could see activity in the next couple weeks, right? So, Continue, you know, over these next few weeks to monitor that legislation, monitor that that progress, because, you know, we could see some substantial activity before the end of the year.
2: Great, Ryan. I think speaking of that activity, we're seeing a lot of change here, right, around the globe, not just in the U.S. but around the world. Um, so it's a lot of information. It's a lot of things to think through. So I think it never hurts to just go back to the basics and ground yourself in the principles of 740. I mean, we've talked about here today, what is an income tax? And Damien gave the definition of a deferred tax asset. Um, So I think that's important when you're thinking about what all of this activity means for your financial statements. And I'll maybe just add mine. You
1: know, you mentioned new information in assessing uncertain tax positions. I think across the board of everything we've talked about, it's really important That you're accounting for information in the period in which it's received. So we talked about regulations. Um, You have to think about how you'd consider, you know, temporary or final versus proposed. But even as we come into year end or, you know, December 31st, and even as we look ahead into the first quarter... It's just so critical that a company has a process in place in order to measure and, sorry, monitor, know that they're coming, but then also be prepared to respond to some of your earlier comments. So I think just that, that process in place to always be staying ahead of these developments, as difficult as
0: that may be, is important. Great. Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, Please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.
3: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.